Well, good morning, everyone. I would invite you to take your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. We continue to make our way through the Gospel of Luke. We started this, our study of Luke, a few years ago at Christmas time, and I really prayed that the Lord would allow us to end it at Easter time, and, uh, and it's working out that way, that we're able to uh, come around this section right around this time of the year to be reminded of all of the truths that, that are present to us as we consider the resurrect, death and resurrection of Jesus, and today we're going to jump into what I want to call the forgotten message of Easter, an element that we can sometimes overlook. And uh, we'll unpack this here this morning. But before we do, would you just join me in prayer as I open our time in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you now for the privilege we have of continuing our worship, continuing this time of reflecting on the cross. Thank you for the table to be reminded of Christ and what he's done and to sing these great songs and these great hymns of the faith and God, now as we are in your word, may this change our view of the world, a view of our lives. As real and as stark as it is, may we also find hope and understanding and peace as we go through this this morning. And God, thank you that we get to do it together as a family. Thank you, God, for this gift of this moment. I pray that it would just be a time of worship for us all. In Christ's name, amen. I want to ask you a question, a little church history question. Don't raise your hand. Uh, but uh, have you ever heard of the um, Heidelberg Disputation? Okay, probably not something that you celebrate every April. But, uh, but actually there was an event called the Heidelberg Dis- Disputation that occurred in around uh, 1518 in April. And it was an event that actually is a very important event in church history. Some very important truth came out of the Heidelberg Disputation. And I want to just take a moment and and tell you a little bit about this time in church history because it will help you, I believe, understand this text that we're going to be looking at here this morning. I think it will put this text in perspective for you. Let me tell you a little bit about the Heidelberg Disputation. Uh, when, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, he was, of course, wanting to have a dialogue about this practice called indulgences. He was concerned that the gospel was getting lost. He was concerned that, that, that there were offers being made by the church that weren't biblical. They were messing up with the doctrine of justification. And so he wanted to have a debate about this, a discussion about this practice as to whether or not it was truly biblical and, and the implications of it on the gospel. He was, part, uh, he was a monk who was a part of the Augustinian order. And the head of the Augustinian order was actually a, a man who was sympathetic to Luther. He actually uh, you know, thought that Luther had some merit to what he was saying. So he ordered a big meeting in Heidelberg, Germany. And he said, Luther, you have got to present your theology to us. What you believe. Lay it out here. And we're going to respond to it. And so Luther wrote out his theology, and presented it. He presented it in Heidelberg, Heidelberg, Germany, hence the name, the Heidelberg Disputation. Now, in the course of this disputation, Luther made 25, 30 different points. 
And he was outlining these, these, these different points. And uh, these points are rather complex and rather cumbersome sometimes to read. And you might read through the Heidelberg Disputation and go, wow, what in the world is he saying? But of all the points that he made, there were four points that I want to read to you this morning. They'll be up on the screen so you can follow along. There's four points I want to read to you. And these four points, when I first read them, you're going to go, what? What in the world is he saying? But don't worry, I'll explain them to you. But I want to read them to you because I think... They're very important, and like I said, they they will put something in perspective for you that will help you understand what Jesus is saying here in this text to his disciples. So let me read you the points. I'm just going to read them kind of slowly, and and we'll just kind of hit through the four points here. Here's the first point that Luther made in his disputation. He said, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. No one said amen. I'm just teasing. Okay, I know it doesn't totally make sense. I'll explain it to you. Second point. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. I actually thought someone was going to joke and say amen there. Okay. Sorry, that's why I paused. Okay, third point. That is not a trigger now on this third point. Okay, third point. A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross calls the things what it actually is. Fourth point. That wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. Now let me explain to you what he's saying. Because you're saying, Steve, if you're trying to help me understand this text, you just confused it for me. Okay, so let me explain this for you. Luther makes this point. He says, now listen, there are certain truths we know about God. He's holy, he's loving, he's caring, he's merciful, right? We have these truths. Now we could sit around and we could say, okay, God is love. What does that mean to me? And then we could start extrapolating what the love of God means. And we can kind of go down this logical road. Well, if God is love, that means he wouldn't hate people. And if God doesn't hate people, that means he'd never be mean to people. And if God would never, well, I think hell is a mean place, so therefore God would never send people to hell. Therefore, hell doesn't exist. Right? You could kind of do that kind of thing. If you're taking some truth and you're extrapolating it down this road. Now he says, no good theologian would ever do that. And here's the reason why he would never do that. No good theologian would never do that because once he starts logically going down the way and extrapolating truth that way, then suddenly he's going to create a theology that's going to look like himself, not like God. Right? That's what you'll do. You'll, you'll create a theology that will end up looking like you, and what you want is for everything to go great in the world. And what you want is for there to never be problems. And what you want is you want everything to be perfect and to go your way and everybody to do it your way. And therefore, you'll become what he called a theologian of glory. You will create a world that is designed for you. And you'll never see God for who he is. Now, the good theologian, here's what the good theologian does. The good theologian takes this truth, the love of God, and says, okay, if I want to understand the love of God, I've got to understand it in light of the cross. What does love mean based on the death of Jesus? 
What does holiness mean as I think through the lens of the cross? And he says, in fact, the entire sum of theology has to be run through the cross because that is where God revealed himself fully. And so what you have to do is say, okay, this is the place where the fullness of God was put on display from his love to his wrath, every attribute in one place. So if you're ever going to understand God, you take that thing like holiness, you take that thing like love, and you say, okay, now what does it mean through what I learn through Jesus and the way that he embodied this truth and the way he embodied it through the cross? Now, he, Luther called those people theologians of the cross. So he says, you've got theologians of glory that take something like the love of God and then they run it through and develop something that looks like themselves. Or you've got the theologians of the cross that take this truth like love and say, okay, how do we see it manifested at the cross? How do we see it manifested in, the, in what Jesus did, how Jesus acted, how Jesus operated? And he says, now... If you do that way, you're walking through the right understanding of God. If you do it the other way, the the theology of of the glory, then you're puffed up, you're arrogant, you'll just start making a God that looks like you. Now, that Heidelberg disputation was a very important moment in in crystallizing of, of a certain theological point, which was the understanding that the cross is not only an event in which I'm saved, The cross is an event in which I learn how to understand God. I learn how to live in this world. I learn what to expect from this world. And I learn, excuse me, how I should live in this world. I learn it all through the cross. Now, I thought about that this week, and I bring this up because that is where we're at here in Luke 22, beginning at verse 24. The disciples are having this conversation among themselves. And this entire conversation is void of the cross. It's void of what Jesus is doing. They're taking truths that they understand about God and they're running it outside of what Jesus is doing right here. Outside of what he's saying. And they've created a theology of glory missing a theology of the cross. And so what Jesus does is he brings them to a theology of the cross. And he's going to tell them something about the world. Three things he's going to tell them. He's going to tell them, listen, the kingdom of God is about service. It's not about status. And the kingdom of God is about spiritual warfare, not about spiritual ease. And the kingdom of God is actually going to be a path of struggling and not just kind of riding a wave, surfing into the shore. It's going to be about struggling. And if you miss this, You're going to go through life completely in a bad place, emotionally, spiritually. It's going to be tough. You've got to let what Christ is doing on the cross define your world. That's what we're going to see today. And uh, and as challenging as it is, it's also a, a sense of relief, I believe. Because suddenly you can stop fighting against the wrong things. And to begin, start moving towards the right things. And so let's look at this here. Let's look at the first point that he makes. <clears throat> it's going to tell him here that it's, it's about service, not status. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. 
So here's what's going on. It's the Passover. Jesus has unfolded what the Passover, where the Passover is headed. He stands at the present looking to the future, right? He changes the emphasis of the Passover. They used to stood at the present and look at the past, how God delivered them from Egypt. He stands at this Passover and says, all right, now we're looking forward. There's a kingdom coming. And when you partake of this, you're looking forward now that the kingdom's coming through me. And he begins to explain to them about the kingdom and the new covenant and all that's coming through his blood. And then he throws this little line out. And by the way, one of you around this table is going to betray me. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is it? Is it me? And they start to question. And this then, Luke tells us, leads into another conversation. From is it me to, hey, what place will I have in the kingdom? I'm envisioning, I don't know if this is true or not, but in my little movie theater that goes on in my head, how I see it is this way. Is it me? You know, it can't be me because I actually feel like I'll have a place in the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom's coming and I certainly would be secretary of state. So it can't be me. You know, it's got to be my position. Well, you know, Jesus is clearly the king, but I'm definitely like the dude right next to him. You know, and they're having this argument now. So it goes from, am I the betrayer to what is my place? What is my status in the kingdom? And they start to have this dispute notice he says a dispute arose an argument arose they're fighting over the position ah thank you frank see that perfect i didn't even ask but he knew that we weren't going to make it through the sermon without it thank you frank appreciate it so they're having this argument right who's going to have what position and it's all about the kingdom of god you do know that So Jesus says the kingdom's coming, and they leave the the betrayal part quickly to start moving into who has what status. Now, I don't think they're sitting there saying, I'm better than you, or you're better than, you know, like, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. I think it's more like, I really think that I would be the number two guy. Why would you be the number two guy? I certainly would be the number two guy. Peter's saying, well, listen, man, you need a type A guy, and I'm type A. And John's going, yeah, but... I'm the one he loves, right? Right? I, I, who else gets that title? He loves me. Well, yeah, but you'll just be his aide. I'll be the vice. No, no, no. You can't be the vice leader. I have to be the vice. You could just imagine them arguing over status. And the reason why we can chuckle at this is because we do it, right? We would do it. So notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> And he said to them, the kings of the Gentile exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. Now don't let that pass you by, what he's saying there. Notice, the kings of the Gentiles. So now, these guys are having the Passover. They're discussing who has what status. And he says, you know, the pagan kings, right? The guys who are far away from the kingdom of God, right? The world. The unrighteous pagan kings, they have a structure to their kingdoms, don't they? What is their structure? Leaders and followers. That's how pagans think about the kingdom of God. I should be a leader, you should be the follower. Until one day a follower stands up and says, I think I should be the leader, and he kills the leader and he becomes the leader. 
And now you're going to be my follower until one day what happens? Somebody comes out of the ranks and says, I think I should be the leader, and they kill that person, and on and on. Now, that's more than what the text says, but you get the idea. This is what goes on. This is how the secular mind thinks about it. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, but not so with you. Your understanding of leadership is gone. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. This is not the way it's to be with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and leader as the one who serves. You are thinking about status. You're arguing over who's the greatest. I'm telling you, if you really do possess enough skills to be the number two guy in the kingdom of God, then you should be the greatest servant in the kingdom of God. And in fact, the greater you are, the more you should dial back your, great, your, 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 your desire for leadership and become the youngest person in the room. That's just another way of saying the, the, the servant, the, the one that's overlooked. He uses the word youngest because the youngest means overlooked. Children were to be seen but not heard. They had no status. They had no position. So if you feel you have this awesome status in the world, then you should convert that into saying, I don't want any status. I don't want any. See, this is, you, these guys are thinking about their status, and he's saying, no, 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 no. It's not about that. Look at verse 27. He unpacks it further. For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. Now, here's the picture. If you went to a state dinner and you said, a bunch of leaders are going to get together from a bunch of countries, but you don't know who these leaders are, and you walked into the room and you saw a bunch of people with suits and ties sitting around a table eating and a bunch of people with kind of waiter clothes standing there bringing them food, logically you could figure out who the the, the leaders were and who the servants were. Because the servants are the ones bringing to the food to the people who are sitting there eating. Okay, so here's what he's saying. So who's the greater one? Well, of course, the one who reclines at the table. The one who's sitting and eating. Not the waiter, the one who's getting the food served to them. That's who the the leader is. He says, but think about this, boys. I'm serving you. I am serving you. He's washed their feet. He's about ready to die on a cross. It's incredible what he's doing. Okay, so if he's the Messiah and he's took a towel and bowed down and washed their feet, and if he's the Messiah and he's willing to take their sin upon his shoulder, what does that tell us about leadership? From time to time, this will happen in our church. Somebody will come and they'll come and they'll visit on a Sunday. Then they'll come a second Sunday. And after second Sunday here, they'll corner me. Steve, really appreciate your church. I really identify what's here. I would like to preach next Sunday. Happens four or five times a year. I would like to preach next Sunday. I say, well, that's not our greatest need right now. That's my answer. I have a stock answer. It's not my greatest need right now. Our greatest need are for people to come on our setup teams. Our setup teams need help. We could use more. That's our greatest need. So if you really want to help us, uh, can I put your name down on the setup team? Well, I'm called to preach. Great. Praise God. Our greatest need 
It's a setup team right now. Would you be willing to be on the setup team? Well, you don't understand. I have this gift, and I have to use this gift. That's great. Praise God you have this gift. We don't really need another preacher here. We got a fairly deep bench, but we really need help with our setup team. Of course, they leave. I go home. I eat my lunch. I look at my email, and I get the 11-page email of how I've hindered this person's progress in life, and I'm not recognizing the Spirit of God, and God's going to condemn us, and all these kind of things, right? Why do I do this? Is it, is it a hoop to jump through? No, it's that recognition. That service is what God is about. It's not about authority. Preaching is not a position of authority in which you're standing over someone and saying, right? Preaching about saying, we're just serving. We just want you to understand God, right? And if you're not willing to help set up chairs, there is no way you're going to stand up here and open up the word of God because you've missed the point of the word of God. The whole point is that you're going to serve. And if our greatest need is to set up chairs, then you should be the first one to roll up your sleeves and set up chairs. And if you don't have that heart, you're not getting this pulpit. Period. There's a huge wall because you're missing the point of it all. You're missing the point of it all. This is what Jesus is saying. Guys, you've got to understand. I am the Messiah. I am the king of the kingdom of God. And I'm okay washing your feet. I'm okay. And I'm okay not being noticed. I'm okay not getting the recognition I deserve. I'm okay if I go through life and no one sees me for who I am right now. I'm okay that I can go through life and and put on the role of a servant and be seen as way less than what I am. I'm okay with that. Because the Father sees it. And that's all I live for. The Father sees it. You see, the hardest part for us as Christians is to recognize that service is what God wants, not status, because it's easy for us to maybe pull away and say, hey, I want status. I want to be recognized. I want to be seen for what I did. I did all this hard work. Why didn't anybody recognize it? And that's the theology of glory that resides in all of us. And Jesus reminds us, listen, if you want to understand position in the kingdom of God, you want to understand, you've got to understand the cross, and the cross tells us it's about service, not status. Now, God rewards. God rewards service. Look at verse 28. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Guys, you are going to have a position of status. You're going to be eaten at the table in the kingdom of God. Not only that, I don't even understand this in full, but the entire 12 tribes of Israel will be standing before you because I've revealed the fullness of truth to you. The mystery of the kingdom has been given to you. The full understanding of the Old Testament is going to be given to you. And when the day of judgment comes, I'm using you guys. You'll have a position of status over all of the nation of Israel. But right now, let that go and serve. The rewards are coming. The status comes in the kingdom of God. But the cross says 
that the Son of God, who had all the glory of God, was willing to set aside the fullness of His glory, the fullness of the recognition of who He was, to be seen as a man, to die on a cross, to be called the devil himself, so that people could be redeemed. But then God will raise him up on the last day and every knee will bow and say he's the Lord. That's the path. It's about service, not status. If we flip that around and say, I want status now, it's not a good way to go. But that's what our flesh wants. So, first lesson. The kingdom of God is about service, not status. Second element, though, it's about spiritual warfare and not spiritual ease. This is pretty chilling stuff. I can't imagine what it would be to hear Jesus say this in verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Okay, you're over here, Simon, arguing about what position you're going to have in the kingdom of God. Do you realize what's going on in the heavenly places, Simon? Do you realize what's going on? There was a council that occurred in heaven in which Satan stood before the Father and said, I demand Simon. I demand him. And and if you have no idea how wheat is sifted, it doesn't really matter. It's just bad, right? (laughs) You don't want to be sifted like wheat. It just sounds painful, right? I don't fully understand how wheat is sifted other than it's thrown around and beaten around and all kinds of things happen to the wheat. And he's saying Satan wants to go after you, Simon. He has requested, like Job, that you be the next Job. Okay? Could you imagine that? Now, Jesus' response is both intense and comforting at the same time. Notice his response, verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail... And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, what is missing from this prayer? If you were a theologian of glory, what would be missing? What you'd expect this prayer to be is, I have stopped him, and he won't do it. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I've stopped him from sifting you like wheat. He said, all right, it's going to happen, but I've interceded, So that when the sifting begins, you won't ultimately fall away. We're going to allow it. We've decided, yes. But, don't worry, because I've prayed for you. Which is a good thing. Jesus interceded for him. And here's what we've prayed for. That your faith may not fail. So when you are restored, because he will stumble and he will fall, as we'll see. But he says, once you get restored, go feed my sheep. Care for my sheep. That's what Jesus kept saying to him after he was restoring them. Feed my sheep. Serve them. Care for them. Love them. Give your life for them. Because that's what this is the kingdom of God is about. It's about the servants of God giving their lives for others. Go do this. But you are going to struggle. Now, I want to take a moment here and just give you something that I think is very important to see here. I want you to understand a little bit of the nature of spiritual warfare. Because I think we get a little bit of insight into this moment here. Satan has requested to go after Peter. I don't know, you know all what's involved with this and, 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 and all. I'm not going to jump into the, that heavenly conversation. 
But the bottom line is, is that, that we do have this moment where, where Satan is going to come on to Peter with an intensity and a force that I can't imagine. And in Jesus' prayer, notice his prayer, he says that your faith may not fail. And in that prayer, I think we get a little insight into what spiritual warfare is. So I want to kind of give you a, a side of spiritual warfare that, you might, uh, that might be helpful for you to recognize when it's going on in your life. Jesus prays specifically for the faith of Peter. Now, what is faith? There's two sides to faith. One side of faith says, Jesus, you did it all. You paid it all, like we sung this morning. It's, that's how I'm saved. That's how I'm justified. That's how I'm made right with you. It's by your life, your work, everything. There's another side to faith. The other side to faith is this. It's that side that says, not only... Am I saved and justified through you? But you're worthy to be followed. You're worthy to obey. You're worthy to say, if you say it, that settles it for me. I'll do it. And whatever you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to know it, and I want to follow it. That's why the Great Commission is go make disciples of Jesus, people who would follow the teachings of Jesus. Faith says his way's right. Now, spiritual warfare comes in, and here's what spiritual warfare does. Spiritual warfare is that element, that battle that goes on inside that says this. That the cost to following Jesus at this moment is too great. That's spiritual warfare. That identifying with Jesus or doing what he said will cost me too much. And I won't do it. I can't do it. The cost is too great. That's when you know spiritual warfare is hitting you. So Jesus has been talking about service, so let's just use this as an illustration. There are groups of people in our lives, people we don't know, they're easy to serve because we don't know them. People we know and we like, easy to serve. Then there's those five people in your life that are painful people. They hurt you. They take advantage of you. Everything they do is wrong. They're just horrible people. And if you serve them, you're going to enable them to be worse. Not only that, they might take advantage of you. Not only that, they might strip you of all that you have as a human being. You might lose all of your, every dream you could ever have could be lost in serving this person. And there's this little voice inside of you that says, but Jesus says to serve. And then there's this other voice that says, do you realize what I'll lose? And that other voice is spiritual warfare. Saying, listen, lose your soul, gain the world now. That's spiritual warfare. The cost is too great. I can't pay it. I can't do it. Now, the reason why I'm saying this is I want to enlighten you to the fact that when you feel that moment, That is spiritual warfare. The cost of following Jesus right now is too much. And whether you know it or not, here's what you're saying. Here's what I'm saying when I submit to that. I'm saying I would rather gain the world and lose my soul than save my soul and lose the world. That's spiritual warfare. That's what goes on in the reality. Now, This is coming on to Peter. Jesus says, here's what I'm going to do, though. I'm going to pray 
that you won't ultimately deny. That's what I'm going to pray for. That you won't ultimately walk away from God forever. You're going to have a moment when you're going to deny Jesus. But I'm going to make that a moment rather than a reality where you say, I'm done with this, and you walk away completely. He's going to protect you. This is what Paul said is true for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Listen to what Paul said. He said, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I want you to think about that in light of what real temptation is. There's always that moment where you say, this cost is too great. But God is never going to put you in a position where you say, that's it, I'm done with God forever, if you really are a child of God. John tells us in 1 John that those people who do were probably never part of the group to begin with. But he says, you're going to be protected. Jesus would say, I'll protect Peter. Paul says, that protection continues on today. But here's what it means to be in the kingdom of God. It means spiritual warfare. It means that you will be pushed to the edge and you'll be pushed in a situation where you'll have to say, it is better to lose the world and forfeit the world and to gain my soul. And when you face that moment and you start feeling those feelings, don't just start going down that therapeutic route, I just need to talk about it, blah, blah, blah. Go to this point and say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus, help me now. I'm facing this moment. And you promise you'll be here with me. I know I'm going to lose a lot in this world by obeying you. But help me to see that I'm going to gain it more in heaven. There's more waiting for me in heaven than what I'm losing here. Even if I lost all of my status, all of my identity, all of my self-worth, all of my whatever. I'm willing to lose it all to gain my soul. So Jesus, hold on to me now. Now Peter... He's not tracking with Jesus. And uh, notice what he says in verse 33. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Right? I am good to go. Right? He's fired up, man. I know there's a lot of tension brewing in Jerusalem. I got my little fishing knife here. I'll take him on. Right? I mean, the testosterone is flying in Peter. He is ready to roll. And Jesus is like, uh, no, actually, Peter, verse 34, I'll tell you, Peter, basically, the rooster will not crow. It's another way of saying the sun isn't even going to come up this day until you've denied me three times that you don't know me. You see, there's spiritual warfare. The pressure is going to be on, and identifying with me will be hard to do. You'll stand at that moment, and you're going to see that identifying with me is going to be impossible for you. It's going to be impossible. And you are going to deny me. But here's the good news. I'm not going to let you deny me forever. And I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to send you out to go serve the brethren, which is exactly what happened, right? He restored them. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep, right? Go serve them. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Go serve them. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Go, buddy, go. Go out there and strengthen. It got hard for Peter again, didn't it? He denied the truth again, and Paul had to confront him. We learned that in Galatians. Paul had to confront, right? This is a struggle for Peter. Why was it a struggle? Was it a struggle for Peter because Peter was just this weak-willed, emotional guy? No, Satan had said, I want to sift this boy. I want to make it so hard on him. 
It's just, he had a pressure that you and I can't understand. And yet, he kept strengthening the brother, strengthening. And you read the letters of Peter, First and Second Peter, and you will find strengthening stuff in there, encouraging stuff. Because that was what God had called him to do, man, build up the church, build them up. Okay, so one more point here. So we see it's, it's about service, not status. It's about spiritual warfare, not spiritual ease. Final thing, it's about struggling and not surfing. Let's just read this quickly here, verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no, with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has money bag take it, likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Okay, what's he saying here? He says, well, guys, you know, when I sent you out before, they, they, were, they were told he couldn't take anything. And he said, were you provided for? Of course you were. You went to a town, people took you in, they fed you, they gave you clothes, they gave you everything you needed when I sent you out on the mission. Now, guys, that was a training mission. That had a giant safety net underneath it. Now I'm sending you into the world. And I'm sending you to a hostile environment. You better have clothes. You better have food. You better have a way to protect yourself. Things are going to be tough. The road to the kingdom of God is tough. Notice what, how Jesus explains it more in verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. This is a quote from Isaiah 53. Great passage about the suffering of the Messiah. He's going to come in the world. People won't recognize who he is. The Father is going to crush him. And when he dies, he's going to be considered a sinner. And he'll be laid to rest with all the other criminals in the world. That's how he's seen and viewed. Now he's saying, guys, you're following me. Now, in my blood is the new covenant, which means that those who respond by faith, they will be saved, they'll be part of the covenant, there'll be uh, incredible revivals. And those that don't are going to try to kill you. That's the reality of your life. You're going to go through the days, and I'm not going to be carrying you like I did before, where everything was just handed to you. Instead of being carried onto shore by the waves, I'm sending you to the shore to go fight the waves. I'm sending you out from the shore to go back in to the struggle. Be ready. Be prepared. The world will not be easy. Not everybody is going to embrace you. Not everybody's going to celebrate you when you walk into a room. Do not go down the road of the theology of glory that lets you think that this is going to be all easy and great like it was when they were training. Everywhere Jesus went for those three years, he was celebrated. Now when you go out, you're going to be despised and rejected. It's going to be hard. Disciples missed the point. Look at verse 38. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. Right? Because he said, if you don't have a sword, sell your stuff. Get some swords. They said, oh, we got two. Now, the ESV has it translated this way. And he said to them, it is enough. That's just a bad translation. That sounds like Jesus saying, oh, good, you got enough swords. That's not what Jesus is saying. The Greek renders it this way, enough! That's what it is. It's the kids are fighting at the table or kids are fighting in the car. Enough! Stop it! Right? Everybody's quiet! That's what it is. It's a barking moment. Jesus is saying, stop it! 
I'm not talking about swords here. Right? It's like you have missed the point, and we're not talking about it anymore. I'm going to go die, rise from the dead, I'm going to send my spirit, and it will make sense. Okay? So no more talking about swords. Put the swords away. We're going the wrong direction. We've missed the point. But what did they miss? They missed the understanding that it is a struggle. Sometimes in our world, we are theologians of glory, are we not? You know how we, I know we're theologians of glory? Because when things fall apart around us, we say, why is this happening to me? As if it shouldn't? As if you should go through life without problems? As if Jesus never said this? This is a tough world. And it requires struggling. But on the other side of that struggle is the glory of the kingdom of God. We're not waiting for that all to happen right now where, man, I'm with Jesus and it all went great. It's saying, no, I'm with Jesus and he's given me my strength to be able to endure to the end where the glory is. Because as he sends us out on his mission, he sends us into a world where it's tough. So here's the lesson we're learning. Let me wrap this up here this morning. Our flesh wants status. We want to be recognized for what we've done. We don't like it when we don't get recognized for what we've done. We get mad. We want to be seen for who we really are, and we don't want to be bypassed. That's what our flesh wants. Our flesh wants spiritual ease. We want kind of a, a just a, you know, always feel connected to God, always feel like things should be just great and easy and perfect and flowing. We, that's what we assume it should be like. And we want to just surf through life. We want Jesus kind of just to carry us into glory, kind of like, come on home, no problems, everything's great. And we look at people out there in the world, and you, know, you might look around you and say, their life is great, my life stinks, why isn't my life like their life? And, and you do realize that the person you're pointing to is looking at you Saying, man, I wish I had your life. Right? Who's here flying high without problems? No one is. But yet we assume that there are people who are, and we get jealous because we feel we should be cruising like them. It just goes on inside of us, right? Status, spiritually surfing. Jesus says, no, it's about serving. Using your gifts for the glory of God, to serve others, whether you get recognized or not. Meeting the needs that God wants you to meet at any moment, which might not ever put you on a stage in front of people. It's about spiritual warfare. It's about realizing that we are all going to be pushed to a moment when we're going to face this cost. Am I willing to lose this world to gain my soul? Or am I saying, I can't, the cost is too great? We're going to face that multiple times. Today, this week, forever. It's about that kind of warfare. But believing that Jesus is going to sustain us. And it's about struggling. The path of Messiah was a tough path. It was a tough path. The God of the universe was seen as the devil. And that's who we're following. That's how the world responds to him. Some will repent and rejoice at your presence. Others will reject you and send you away. The world is tough. So I was thinking about something that we used to say when I was a kid. It's an old saying. I don't know if some of you may or may not know this. I haven't heard it in years. But we used to say this when I was a kid. Self on the cross, Christ on the throne. 
Because our flesh wants to put ourselves on the throne and keep Christ on the cross. Let him keep suffering so that I don't have to. Instead of realizing, no, you know what? This world is going to be a world where I've got to die to myself daily, take up my cross daily, and follow him. He's in glory. He's preparing a place, and he's going to call us there. Self on the cross, Christ on the throne. So this was my prayer. I want to share it with you. This is the prayer as I was studying this week that I prayed for myself and for all of us. Jesus, allow me to follow you with a heart of a humble servant and to serve you who is on the throne and is worthy of my life. That's just my prayer. Maybe we could just pray this together. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I just pray for all of us because we are theologians of glory. We are. So I just pray, God, that we would see ourselves as needing to die to our flesh and trust that you're on the throne protecting us, praying for us, interceding. So Lord, fill us with humility. Give us a heart to serve. When we face the spiritual warfare, may we turn to you. May we not resent the struggling, but instead submit to it and realize that's the path. That's the path. But on the end of that path is a glory in heaven beyond compare. So Jesus, you're worthy of us giving our whole life to you. May we serve you as humble servants. Christ's name, amen.